Welcome to Pro Running News. Dave and Matt speaking about supplements for runners. This is part two. And in part one, if you missed it, we covered carbohydrates, protein, electrolytes, and caffeine, more or less the supplements or substances that I think most people would be quite familiar with using uh, the more you know universally used ones. I think in this episode, we're talking more about uh, supplements that people may not have tried potentially. I think some listeners may have tried at least some of them, uh, but we're going to start with beta alanine, uh, which is more probably used in middle distance, uh, you know, obviously running, but also cycling uh, and swimming. I have tried beta alanine. Dave, have you? Uh, I've used quite a bit of beta alanine in my time, uh, probably more when I was lifting more seriously, but also to some extent when I was running. Uh, with some reasonable rationale, and we can talk a little bit about this and and uh, carry on. But what, what were your experiences, Matt? You were the middle distance guy. I'm sure you you guys were uh, playing around with this. So I am probably not the best person to ask because I had a very terrible experience using it only one time. And so I'm aware that at the time I was quite a bit younger. This is 2009. I was preparing for the Australian National Championships in the 800 metres um, and I was introduced to it. I think this is sort of around the time it started to become a little bit popular in uh, in the health and fitness space. Um, it very well may have dated back a bit more uh, than before 2009, but I thought I'd try it in a very specific 800 meter training session of four by 400 meter at 800 meter goal pace with five minutes recovery. And from memory after the third one, I felt very ill. <laughs> uh, not th- So this, this is 14 years ago, by the way. So I, I do vaguely remember, but um, I believe it was, Completely, you know, I felt I felt great in the first two, hit, hit the target times. I think it was right around sort of 53 high, which was my goal uh, pace for the first lap, um, trying to run 147. And uh, after the third one, I sort of noticed I just wasn't feeling very well. I sort of had a bit of, you know, a, a bit of a headache and just generally felt a little bit sick. Um, did the fourth one. I did slow in the fourth one, you know, whether or not I would have slowed or not, who knows. But then I spent the next 20 minutes uh, vomiting and decided at that point that it just wasn't something that I was willing to try because I just feared it would strike me in a race. Now, you know, going back, I probably wish I'd tried it a few more times just to see if it was something that I just had to get used to. Uh, but yeah, that was the only time I have I have tried it. Now, I have had a couple of brands send, well, two specifically send me beta alanine to to try. And I and I do have some beta alanine sitting in in my apartment, um, in sorry, in my in my storage in London, but I I haven't tried it again. But I'm very open to trying it again and seeing because I have heard uh, from other people's experiences that it can be helpful. But uh, you know, is it going to help me in the marathon? I don't really know. It'd be good to hear any uh any, anything that you might know about beta alanine because it sounds like you've definitely taken it more than I have. Yeah, I went through a patch where I was taking it pretty regularly. Um, the research at the time and probably to this day still supports its use in repeated intense bouts. So for uh, the workout you're doing is probably a good example of that sort of thing. You're talking about about a minute worth of work, you know, a fair rest afterwards. That's why it's used in strength training as well. And it looks, you know, in those cases to, in you know, give you a little bit more performance in those sort of shorter timeframes. And I won't talk about exactly why, you know, the physiology is not really that important. So repeated high intensity efforts. So it might be worthwhile for some interval training for marathon runners. I don't think it's that helpful on race day. The downside is paresthesias, what they call paresthesias. I don't know if you experienced these. This is one of the reasons I kind of stopped taking it. It's kind of this love-hate thing I had with it. Uh, it basically, you get tingles is, is what a paresthesia is. You get these weird tingling feelings of your skin and you get it in different spots. I used to get it on the back of my hamstrings. I used to get it on my face. I used to get it like sort of itchy under the shirt. 
I had a roommate who used to get on his hairline. We used to, he used to take it before he went to the gym and we, we would sit there and watch an episode of something on TV or sorry, on his computer. Cause it was, that's how long it was ago. And uh, he would start scratching his hairline just before the end of the episode, which is about 25 minutes. And then he would go to the gym uh, ready to sort of rip his hair out. Um, and so that's a, a good example <laughs> of it. Again, some people like it. Some people hate it. It's the parasites is definitely more pronounced on an empty stomach. Uh, so I used to take it because I didn't, you know, my rationale was a couple of things. If I was doing intervals, sure. And if I wasn't, it was because I didn't want to warm up and I could crack on and not have to worry too much about the negative effects of that. I think it's probably uh, a bit of crap justification uh, on reflection. Uh, I probably wouldn't use it now. Uh, I just don't see, you know, maybe it gives me a couple of percent or something like that from my interval sessions, but I don't know if it really would. I don't know how valuable it is in that respect. There's some more suggestive research reading the AIS guidelines around this or the fact sheets that we mentioned will be in the show notes of the previous episode that we did on this, uh, looking at chronic dosage with the view towards saturating muscle carnitine stores. Um, maybe that helps. Maybe it helps some metabolism. I'm not sure. Like Part of the challenge you have with this stuff is metabolism is really complex and changing something like that may or may not have a benefit, but the problem is you have about six other things that happen between there and actually, you know, performing right of, so it's a pretty long metabolic process. So I, I'm not as convinced it will happen. Uh, but again, low cost, uh, you know, low consequence aside from the paresthesia. So it might be something that people want to experiment with, especially for if they want to go lift some serious weights. Um, and in that phase, I would say it's probably not pure strength. You probably need it for an intermediate type of uh, training more, akin to hypertrophy bodybuilding where you're looking to work towards failure higher rep ranges but if you're under six reps and not really working to failure i don't see a huge benefit here from it although i'm happy to be wrong on that um so that's where people might use it they might use it for intensity stuff and, and again we may have some listeners and, and hopefully we do that are middle distance runners or something like that and they may see may see some value there for it um but i think that's probably you know sort of the beginning and the end of the beta alanine um it does work I mean, I do stuff. remember back when I was a middle distance guy, I do remember one of my main competitors who did win the national champs twice. He was very pro bit alanine and, and, and swore by it. I mean, I'm obviously yeah. not really adding much more education to the, to the topic here, but I'm just, I do remember him saying, I mean, he was one of the main reasons why I tried it in the first place. Um, and he was absolutely convinced that he was training and racing better by using it. And, but he was specifically for, he was more 400, 800 meter. So very much yeah. about doing intervals, um, you know, very high intensity stuff. Lots of two hundreds, three hundreds, four hundreds, even one fifties. Not so much long, long tempo aerobic work. So, yeah, yeah. You could also have, uh, you know, the GI upset you experienced could be real from it. Could also just be it was a rough session, mate. That session sounds terrible. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it yeah, very well could have been. Yeah. But I also did experience the tingling. Yeah, yeah. The uh, is it? How do you say it? Para parasthesis. Uh, the parasthesias. Yeah. <laughs> that one, uh, the tingling in the skin. I, I do, I do remember experiencing that. I mean, it wasn't extreme, but it was a little bit, um, you know, strange in the warm up and, and just before I started. But I, do, I don't remember it being a being anything that I thought was, you know, uh, you know, too difficult to to, to to get past. But uh, yeah, give it a go. I mean, I think the only major downside to it, from what I understand, is potentially having um, a little bit of GI upset. But uh, who knows? That experience of mine, you know, it was a very lactate producing workout for four hundreds, pretty much close to max effort with five minutes rest. I, I may have, I may have had a hard time even without the bit out on end. So who knows? Definitely willing to try it again. Yeah. yeah. On to bicarb. Obviously this has been in the, uh, in the media a lot recently, given the mm. release of Morton's bicarb 
supplements uh, with the sort of hydrogel around it. We mentioned this in uh, our random episode, episode 23, where you asked me about my use of it. And we sort of reviewed that Morton specifically there. This isn't about Morton product as much as it is about bicarb in general. Uh, so if you're interested, go back and listen to episode 23. Um, but in terms of bicarb itself, have you used any, Matt? I have not. No, no, haven't used bicarb. I, you know, apologies if I'm repeating myself for those who've listened before, but, um, you know, we, we did a bit of this in my exercise physiology undergraduate using bicarb to test it. And uh, the poor guy who had to test it in this group that we were, were doing it in, it was another group, not mine. My group tested caffeine, but he had to do Wingate tests, which are basically 30 minute, 30 second all out efforts uh, with a certain resistance on a bike. It's a pretty yuck test. You, yeah, I, I won't go into it. Look it up. It's horrible. And he ended up getting a lot of GI upset from the bicarb, which is a known uh, side effect of it. You can give you, and so he was on the toilet with uh, with a bucket on his lap because he was vomiting from the uh, the Wingates and uh, and having some GI issues from the the bicarb. So that is a side effect, and that's one of the things that Morton claims to have solved for, um, and one of the reasons people don't use it. But look, it is long established uh, that it does work. Uh, it works for again sprint type of stuff. The thinking is that it changes, it helps buffer. Uh, lactate or, or hydrogen ions, um, which lactate, we, you know, which aren't then producing uh, lactate. Uh, but there is some argument over that. I know that uh, Inigo Samalan sort of had a bit of a crack at this on Twitter. I'm not going to comment too much there as to its mechanism as much as it does work. There is some good research on it in higher sort of sprint type of stuff. Uh, track cyclists use it a lot. Uh, you know, 400 meter, 800 meter people use it a lot. Um, whether that's the Morton or the other stuff. Uh, the Morton stuff looks interesting because there's a lot of anecdotes and look, the plural of anecdote isn't data, but you know, where there's smoke, there's fire and, and you know, success leaves clues. There are people using it in longer stuff and seeing some benefits there that are really interesting. You know, Killian Jornet, yes, is a Morton athlete. He's paid to talk positively about it, but he does seem to think that it's it's helpful for some other weird stuff that traditionally bicarb isn't that associated with. So, you know, that's one of the reasons I've played with it. It's also kind of what we do. So, so so be it, but um, it's an interesting supplement. You know, if you want to take the normal bicarb, it it is the stuff that is in your in your pantry. It is there, so it's not exactly expensive. Uh, it can be an expensive uh mistake though if you get GI upset. Hmm. So, so thanks for sharing. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what else to say there. Um, again, dosing protocols are based on body weight, so I would go check that, and I would start on the low end and see how you go. Um, it's also not pleasant. It's just, it's pretty yuck, to be honest. Um, yeah. And then uh, we're on to the the supplement that spurned all of this, uh, courtesy of Rory Ashmore's question around creatine. Uh, do you have any experience with creatine yourself, Matt? Have you used much? Do you I, know anyone using? <clears throat> I have. I've used it uh, twice. I've used it once back in the middle distance days. And I also tried using it for a month, actually relatively recently, um, when I was in between training for... Uh, the Osaka Marathon and London Marathon. I was taking the regular five grams per day, which is the recommended dose. Uh, I'll be honest, both times I didn't really notice anything at all. <laughs> um, I yep. I did notice a little bit of uh, water retention. Um, there could have potentially been a little bit of an improvement in recovery, but it's very, very minor if so. And that may just be that I was eating very well and focusing on other things. I was also introducing uh, or taking quite a high amount of ketones in that time, which we can talk about later. 
that very well may have been the recovery thing. It's really hard to know. It's one of those things where when you're sort of trying to do many different things to help one certain aspect like recovery, it's hard to know what it is that's helping it. Um, but my experiences with creatine, like I know it's not a very expensive supplement and I do know that for the most part, it's universally known to have pretty well, pretty much no downsides or, or, or more or less none, but quite uh, significant upsides, at least for people weight training and looking to add mass, uh, muscle mass. For me, training in a middle distance context and also for the marathon, honestly, I didn't really notice anything at all um, other than the, yeah, the weight, the water retention, I did notice it was pretty minimal. I think I was probably about half a kilo, maybe one pound heavier, but I did uh, get some advice from a friend that has used creatine on and off for 10 years and he's more of a weight trainer. Um, does do some running, but but more so he was using it for putting on muscle. And he said, just stop taking it for a week and that water retention should go away, which is exactly what happened. Uh, so so yeah, I, I can't really say much about it because both times, I think the first time I used it for about three months, this is back in about 2010. And then for, uh, I think it was about four weeks um, earlier this year. And I honestly wasn't sure if it really did anything for me, but um, curious to hear your your thoughts and your opinion if you've tried it or if you know anyone else that has tried it for the uh, context of uh, for, of running. Yeah, I use it a lot. Um, I don't, don't think it's, you know, we'll talk about the research and this is probably why uh, Rory ended up reaching out. He probably saw the same paper I did, uh, which is in our show notes here. So you can uh, have a little bit of a look at that if you're interested. But um, the long and the short of it, uh, creatine came into vogue in the 90s Um for strength and power sports particularly uh, at the time they were doing these loading protocols so you would do this serious loading i think it was like 30 grams like 30 grams a day or something it was or maybe 10 grams a day or something i don't know it was a, it was a high dose i can't remember it to be honest so it's high dose loading protocol for a period of a week then you would taper off for a period of um time and then you would end up having a period without any so you sort of had this high intake to saturate your muscle stores then you would take a maintenance dose and you would have you would cycle off of it more contemporarily, people are now just realizing, again, you can get this from food. So cycling off, it's not as important. Uh, and loading phases were causing GI upset. Sounds like everything causes GI upset these days uh, from this podcast, but um, it was causing GI upset and, and it was a bit hard. So people have just gone to a five gram per day dosing, no need to cycle off of it. Uh, the interesting stuff is around brain metabolism and creatine is looking increasingly interesting in this space. There's some interesting research on concussion, post-concussion using creatine. There's some interesting effects on cognitive health in the elderly specifically. Uh, and then people who are on a low meat uh, or low animal food diet. So vegan, vegans, vegetarians, those sort of things. So, I mean, there's this use there from a health perspective. Performance wise, yeah, you mentioned it. Strength is classically where it is and it's used. It's It's, you know, uh, it's a phosphate donor in that high intensity, short time frame. So this makes a lot of sense for strength training. It makes a lot of sense for uh, sprinters. Once you get beyond 400 meters, probably less so. But again, it's probably not a big consequence aside from the weight gain, which again, as you mentioned, that weight is actually intracellular. It's in the muscles. It's with the creatine itself. Um, there's an argument either way. You could say the weight's detrimental. You could argue, yeah, maybe it means once you use it and you liberate that water, you have more water and you need to drink less. Yeah, I'm not going to argue either way there. I think it's semantics. Um, up to you if you want to cycle off it or not. It doesn't make a huge difference. We talked a little bit about um, there's some research, there's some cool research on it refueling, and it may help as an acute dosing with your refueling there as well in terms of uh, glycogen resynthesis. So post-workout uh, creatine dosed with your carbohydrate may help there. Although 
in terms of where to dose creatine doesn't really matter. Some people say dose it before because it's an energy donor. Some people say dose it afterwards for recovery. Some people say just take it when you can take it. I think probably the third is the answer because you're looking to chronically elevate total creatine. But if you're choosing and you get to choose and it's not going to affect enjoyment or likelihood to take it, then okay, maybe post with your carbohydrates makes some sense. Um, that's probably, yeah, the, the crux of creatine. The paper that was released recently that I alluded to before really covered some sprints at the end of a long sort of time trial. That was a protocol. And this is the challenge with sports science research is how much does it really mimic the real world, right? So if you run London, like I ran London marathon, I ran even pace, probably doesn't help. You could argue it maybe it helped my Berlin performance because I ran that pretty, you know, a little bit easier relatively and then picked up the last three kilometers. So into a bit of a sprint. So then maybe you could argue, okay, then it's, it's helpful. I think we're probably arguing semantics here. It may help with some, if you're racing with some like surging in there, it may help you in that respect. But again, you're then paying the cost with increase in mass, whether you want to do that or not, depending on what sport it is. I'm not as big a believer that mass is a huge problem, but, but it may be for some people. Hmm. Well summarized. Um, yeah, I, I honestly haven't heard of too many more people in the endurance world talk about creatine. That's not to say that you know, it's not it's not widely used. Uh, but in the discussions I've had with with you know professional athletes and, and people I've trained with, it's very rarely comes up. But uh, yeah, often in health podcasts, it's 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 almost always brought up in a pretty positive light, especially for um, for for more sprinting and and sort of weightlifting stuff. But uh, yeah. Yeah. The only other last thing is uh, creatine monohydrate is a very common form. It's probably the only form you need to be worrying about. It's by, by far one of the cheapest. Don't worry about the rest of it. So people are interested. Uh, that's the way to go. It is like cents per serving these days. So I wouldn't be too concerned in that regards. Uh, and kidney damage is not to be worried about. Your creatinine will go up potentially with muscle mass and a few other things. I wouldn't be worried about it though. It's not actually a kidney problem. It's just the way it's measured. So if you're interested in that, go research it, but it's not a concern. Glycerol. You don't have mm -hmm. too much experience with this, having talked to you about this beforehand, do you, Matt? This is all yours, Dave. I've heard of the yeah. word. I've heard it mentioned in a couple of different uh, health podcasts that I've been interested in lately, but I have never taken it and I have not heard of anyone taking it. So the, uh, the mark is all yours with this one. Yeah. I mean, I think you probably have more insight here than you think. And uh, when I start talking, you'll start to realize, uh, but so I don't, I haven't used glycerol either, but Glycerol is effectively just a way to hold water. So this is what's used in a lot of um, prehydration strategies for marathons, cooling strategies, that sort of thing, because it's about gaining, you know, your ability to hold under water. So if you drink a liter or a half gallon of water right now, if you just drink it as quickly as you can, most of that will be peed out because of the way the kidneys work and the way it senses everything. Using things like sodium, electrolytes, et cetera, that we talked about in our previous podcast or using glycerol, you can hold on to a bit more of that water. We talked a little bit about that previously. So this is basically what it boils down to. There's a great diagram here on the AIS if you want to go look at it. Um, that's in our show notes. We don't have the diagram, but the, the link to the AIS. And effectively what it does is just helps you hold on to this water. So you use this to help you in a preloading strategy, which is really similar to what the guys at Precision Fuel and Hydration suggest, which is based more on sodium, which is the alternative. So if you read the glycerol stuff on the AIS, they mentioned you can use sodium as well. So that's really about can we create a situation where the body holds on to more water so that we can use it later rather than just peeing it out um, because changing total body water levels is quite hard to do uh, because the body is so good at controlling these things using the kidney and a few other things. So 
whilst you haven't had experience with glycerol, you probably have had experience with some preloading with the stuff from Precision, from my understanding. Yes, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I've done similar. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be using this, well, glycerol specifically until it's it's quite hot. If And again, you'd need to be practicing this stuff. So that's probably the way I'd go there. And um, yeah, that's, that's probably all I've got to say about that. It's probably only helpful in significant heat. And uh, if you're, you know, performance or if your event is quite long, like many of these things, right? Like electrolytes, all those sort of things, it's about duration. So these aren't going to be helping, um, you know, the hydration stuff's not going to help you if your event is under an hour, uh, probably yeah. even under two hours. All right. Before we move on to beetroot, uh, I'm curious to know, because I'm very unfamiliar with glycerol and I'd like to just learn from you, Dave, is glycerol found in food or is it something that we must take from a supplement that we buy at a supplement store? Yeah, it's it's an it's a form of like it's a type of alcohol. It's naturally it's quite sweet and naturally occurring. So, so um, yeah, look, you, you can probably acquire it from some alcohols and that sort of stuff. Um, maybe a couple of things because it's fermented. But I wouldn't be. It's not something you're going to be focusing on. It's not something you're going to be um using food sources for. So it is probably possible that you're getting a little bit in your diet, but it's very much a specific supplement um to be taking in this context, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, on to beetroot, which is probably a far more, I would say many people listening to this have probably at least tried taking beetroot juice. Um, yeah, I have tried it in the past. I, again, sort of similar to creatine for me, I wasn't really sure if it was doing much for me. But Dave, you're a little bit more clued in on the reasoning for taking beet juice. I, I've heard different things about VO2 maxing, you know, improvements and general endurance improvements and blood flow in improvements. I'm not sure if one, two, or all of those are actually real reasons why people take them, but uh, keen to hear your um, your perspective on, on beetroot and if you've tried it at all. Yeah, I tried it a little bit. Um, probably ended up getting rid of it for a, a couple of reasons that we can sort of touch on, but um, beetroot is high in uh, organic nitrates, and it's really important to not get confused between nitrate, nitrite, and those sort of things, but nitrates uh, get converted to nitric oxide in the body. My chemistry is terrible here. We've talked about this before. Sorry, Matt. Uh, long story short, I, I won't go too much of the chemistry before a chemist uh, senses DM on Instagram killing me. But one of the processes in this is uh, via the bacteria in your mouth, um, do the first process in this. So if you're using mouthwash, then you're killing those bacteria and then the nitrates won't work basically, uh, the, or the nitrates. When I say that, I mean the beetroot. Um, so I say that to say, if you're going to supplement with beetroot juice or something like that for performance, you need to actually avoid mouthwash for a few days to have the, that oral bacteria there to help you do that. The whole goal is to have this eventually end up as nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator, which can help you increase your pump. If you're a gym goer, it can help with oxygen delivery. Uh, so vasodilation is opening up a blood vessels, so it can help with oxygen delivery to the muscle. Um, so that's where it improves uh, performance. The improvement research suggests up to about 30 minutes um, as uh, where that effect stops being, I guess, evidence-based. And that kind of makes some sense when you start to think about the limiting factors in these exercise events so that a lot of that becomes peripheral. Um, it's not an energy fuel limit. It's not a fuel source limiter. Uh, it's more about um, your ability to run at that high, you know, sort of right around that second threshold, looking at, you know, accumulation of waste products, metabolic waste products. So if you've got better blood flow, that might help a little bit there. Uh, there is a lot of research on this in people who have, um, who are a bit older, who have reduced VO2 maxes, and then they're using this stuff to improve it. 
That said, if you're getting a high dose of nitrates from your diet and they come from beetroot, leafy green vegetables, there may not be as big an effect for you. Like anything like creatine, for instance, the more deficient you are in this, the more the supplementation will help. Uh, so that's the thing. The dosing regimes here are pretty significant given the cost of some of these supplements. Again, you get to decide if it's expensive or if it's worth it, but they can be relatively pricey and the dosing needs to be quite high so that AIS fact sheets are great here in terms of what the dosing is. But it's kind of like a couple days worth of one of the supplements and then night before and morning of. So not super cheap there. Beat It Sports is like the really common one that everyone sort of uses and talks about. Um, you can get big bottles, you can get small bottles. Um, they're the sort of most evidence-based uh, one, but there are other ones as well. Um, the powders and stuff are a bit variable. You need to know what dosing you're getting of these because you need to know the total uh, nitrate dose. Uh, but look, very commonly used. Um, I have had an athlete that I was working with who had some GI issues from it because it's a high sugar load because beets are fundamentally sugar. And he had some GI issues from the high sugar load. Uh, I stopped taking it partially because of that, partially because of price. And I wasn't seeing a great deal of benefit in the longer stuff. So um, that's kind of why I stopped, but there may be reasons to use them. Mm. Big spectrum, I think, from what I've understood. I know people that have had it every single day for five years because they're convinced that it helps them in training and it, 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 it you know improves their endurance and their ability to um, the, you know, the things that you mentioned, I don't know a few other people, you know, including both of us, I guess, that have sort of tried it and not been too convinced on, um, it being overly beneficial, maybe in relation to the cost of it. So yeah, seems like it's one of those things that sort of maybe is more beneficial for some than others. Um, uh, not fully clear. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, has been around for quite some time now and, and, and is repeatedly brought up in, in conversation when it comes to endurance related supplements. So there's obviously been some studies there that have proven that it's got some sort of, uh, uh, mild benefit for some yeah yep on to probiotics some people might be very surprised by hearing that here um i think look there was an explosion probably 10 years ago into like everyone's taking probiotics we should be taking them for gut health and there's been a bit of backlash it's pros and cons to all of it the interesting thing that the only real evidence that's ever really existed for probiotics uh, specifically i mean actually that's a lie there's been quite a few little bits of um evidence but a general probiotic rather than specific strains um is actually in reducing upper respiratory tract infections in endurance athletes so a very specific niche thing for us um so quite interesting when you consider the number of people who get sort of taper illnesses and sniffles and stuff traveling and all that stuff so it may be worthwhile to supplement with probiotics for a period of time and again talk to your doctor, check the AIS fact sheets. You know, I don't want to say do your own research that has its own connotations attached to it, but worthwhile reading into this a little bit um, and looking at you know what's what's right for you. But there is some research here that's really cool, I think. Um, and there's a little bit of other research talking about perhaps helping with GI stress from intense training. So uh, yeah, it's a really interesting, cool use case, I think, for you know our listenership who are going to be traveling for races and that sort of stuff. Do you know much about them, Matt? Have you used them? Any athletes you know use them? Anything like that? I've never heard of any athletes using it. No, I mean, I've never used it consistently. It's sort of one of those things where um, I've sort of occasionally tried it for, for a week at a time, never really noticed too much benefit. Um, so can't really speak to it as much as you can, honestly. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't come up in conversation too much, but have read through the research that you've pointed to and uh, certainly shows that there's there's something there. But um, no, I, it's something that it's one of those things where I, I should probably try it for a longer period of time to see, see what I experience. But yeah. Uh, I can't say that I, I have found any benefits to it at this point. Yeah. I think it's also hard to feel an effect here because if you use them and you don't get sick, you think, oh, they work. And if you don't use them and you get sick, you're like, oh, maybe I should try them. But that's not necessarily the case, right? You can get, you can avoid sickness 
we, uh, you know, without them and you can avoid sickness with them. And, you know, so it, it's hard to know here and they're not super cheap and, and all those things, but uh, you know, a small period of usage, I think the, the protocol is like two weeks before and then, you know, through the period you need them, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't, maybe your poop becomes really expensive. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I have used them. I've used them quite a bit uh, for various reasons. Um, yeah. I might, I might bear the consequences of that one day. It's hard to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but on to something that you are super passionate about, mate, ketones. Uh, let's talk. What are you finding? You've been using them a lot. Uh, so yeah, mate, let's, let's, let's hear it. Don't give away my secret. No, obviously I've been talking about this on podcasts. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I mean we, I, we talked about yeah. it. We, we talked about it on episode yeah. 18 as well. I know. So, uh, I go back and listen that. to that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it, it's definitely one of those things I've introduced it to probably 10 different people. And I would say five of them love it. The other five are not sure if it does much. Um, so yeah, ketones are a relatively, you know, well, to, to hear the full backstory of what ketones are and how they work, like you mentioned, Dave, episode 18 would be a good start. Um, but in short, you know, previous to the creation of ketone supplements, ketones in the brain were only able to be activated, probably lacking the better word, by fasting, by, you know, being out of carbohydrates or very low on carbohydrates for a very for a very lengthy period of time, 48 hours plus for most people. Um, taking um, ketone supplements means that, you know, crosses the blood, blood brain barrier, produces basically another highway, I think was the word used by, uh, Michael Brand, HVMN um, founder, Highway of Energy to the brain, which is a little bit different to carbohydrates. I think the best way for me to describe it is is it is an energy boost. It's definitely different to say caffeine. It's a little bit more calming than than caffeine. Uh, but I feel like I, I'm not fully convinced how much it's helping on the training front. I think there is definitely an aspect of assistance with recovery and also just with general energy. And I think when I take ketones, it's a little bit like when you wake up in the morning, you don't really feel like running until you take caffeine. And then you might feel a lot more like running because it's, it's, it's the effect that caffeine has on your brain. Ketones give me the same sort of, uh, effect. And also, um, but I definitely feel like the mental clarity uh, benefit is the most is the most obvious one to me. Uh, in that, if I need to do something for a long period of time that might, you know, involve very long periods of focus and concentration, I feel like ketones are maybe even more beneficial to me than something like caffeine which of course then also crosses over to being a long steady tempo run like that just means that i'll probably feel better during it i'll not necessarily uh feel fatigued as early Um, but the other thing that i'm noticing with ketones is that it controls my appetite really well I don't feel anywhere near as hungry, which I know some people are probably already thinking, well, that could potentially be dangerous when you're training for a marathon. Completely agree. You do have to be careful there that you're not underfueling because that's a real problem that people have. Um, but I tend to, if anything, uh, you know, probably overeat if 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 anything, and especially you know during a marathon block, that probably doesn't matter because you're training so much and so hard that you're just burning through it anyway. Um, but when I'm not training for a marathon, I I do put on a few kilos pretty quickly, just probably because. Um, I'm continuing that diet while I'm not training as hard. But if I'm having ketones, I just genuinely notice two things. One, I'm not as hungry in general, but two, I also don't have anywhere near as high 
an appeal to eating sugary or or unhealthy foods for whatever reason. I just don't feel like eating them as much. And I just have the um, appetite or uh, feeling of wanting to consume healthier foods. And it's, it's bizarre how that happens. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I have heard of others saying the same thing. So it's definitely not just me. Um, but I could put it this way. If I woke up and didn't have ketones that day, I would have a very hard time getting to 3 p.m. I would be so hungry. I would be you know, not able to probably work or do much without, you know, I'd have a really hard time focusing. If I wake up and have a dose of ketones, I honestly could probably go a full day and I'd be completely fine. Now, I know that's not what I would want to do in any, especially when I'm training, that's a, that's a far from what you want to do. But I think it's just to prove the point that what it does in the brain for me is that it really controls my uh, my appetite. So I think the two bigger things is the appetite. And, and, and these are things written on the bottles of most ketone, you know, marketing and branding is that appetite control is one thing. Mental clarity and focus is one thing, you know, endurance and recovery is definitely on the marketing of most ketone supplement uh, supplements these days. And I do think that there's something small there, but the other things I think are more apparent to me. So you, Dave, have also taken ketones and you've been uh, on and off them for some time. Um, what do you think about what I just said and, and what other benefits, if any, have you found from taking ketones? Yeah, I mean, look, we talked a bit about the research uh, in a previous episode. So quick summary, looks like they increase EPO. Is that meaningful? Hard to know. They look like, more interestingly, and this is probably why they use so much in the Tour de France, is they look like they are attenuating overreaching symptoms, which is really interesting. And so we kind of got to understand that a little bit more. Uh, I can't say too much uh, because of a few things, but there is some research coming out that seems to align with an experience I had having spoken to one of the researchers. And my experience was on easy running, I found that I was my RPE was lower for the same pace and or my heart rate was lower for the same RPE slash pace. So that would suggest maybe an improved efficiency. Didn't notice much doing intervals, didn't notice much doing threshold, but that sort of easy running, I definitely felt like it was easier. Um, and then the physiology sort of supported that. I also kind of get a euphoria from them. But again, you can't really blind someone to that. You can't do a blinding yourself because like they, they, you know the taste of these things. They taste pretty putrid. So you, you're not going to like, oh yeah, I wonder if, you know, like I'll blind myself to it and one day I'll use them, one day I won't. And I'll find out later. Like you can't do that. And neither can the research because these things are very distinct. Um yeah, I think there's also some cool research coming out on, again, cognitive benefits in terms of concussion and, and TBI, um, traumatic brain injury. So that'll be interesting to see there. Um, yeah, I don't have too much more to say. It's an interesting, really exciting, cool space. I've had quite a few people reach out to me about it. I'm intrinsically very interested by this. Um, we will eventually have a continuous ketone monitor, similar to a continuous glucose monitor. They are in the works. So that'll be cool to see uh, how that works and, and get dosing a bit better. So yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think we need to say too much more. Check out episode 18 and uh, check out, I think you guys have got an episode with Michael Brandt on the Sweat Elite. Um, mm -hmm. There are a number of other podcasts on them. You can look them up. The other companies to look up uh, are there as well. I think KU4 is one of them. Delta G is another one. Um, yeah, anything from you, Matt? Yeah, just before we move on to the next one, um, I think the easiest way to describe is I've never taken Ritalin or the ADHD medications. I've never tried them before. But from what I've heard about them, I feel like ketones give me more or less the exact feeling of what they do. Now, do not take that as a as a, as, as a as a word of saying that's what they like. But from how I've heard them described in a sense of it being calming and focused, but not necessarily with a big energy boost, 
that's exactly how I feel like ketones feel for me. The next one's menthol. Uh, I'm not sure if you've come across this, Matt. Uh, have you come across menthol in your in your uh, goings around? It's a little bit more recent. No, I have not. No, I mean I, I'm familiar, somewhat familiar with it, but uh, no, I think um, I think you're more familiar with me. So yeah, let's let's get into it. Well, I mean, menthol and pickle juice both sort of work the same way. They work on receptors in the sort of mouth, throat, etc., and then that goes up to the brain, and then they seem to have their effects, as I understand it. And again, I am not well well versed in this and i am simplifying down a little bit so please don't shoot me but in short menthol has a cooling feeling we've all had a menthol sort of drink or something like that and it has a cooling feeling uh, in the mouth and so this is the, the theory behind it is we take menthol this will give us a cooling feeling this may help performance in the heat when we are getting hot because the thinking goes the brain slows us down so we don't overheat so if we can make the brain think it's cooler then perhaps um we can uh perform better in the heat so Again, you probably don't want to be using this too much if you're going to actually get towards prolonged heat exposure and really get your core temperature up. And that's a funny thing because you're kind of riding the line there. From what I understand, the highest risk of really getting over heating and getting to a critical core temperature is actually in that sweet spot of like 30 to 60 minutes uh, is actually the biggest risk because it's both high enough intensity, but also short, uh, long enough duration versus something like 20 minutes where it's hard to get a long enough metabolic um heat increase or something where it's longer like two hours where you're going to slow down before then because you're not creating as much metabolic heat and the intensity is not high enough so uh, unfortunately Leanne Pompiani is probably the most recent that uh, we saw the Australian um at the world cross country championships she got heat stroke and overheated um and that's one example uh, Pat Tiernan was the other Australian runner who had an issue at the world championships some might have seen him collapse um coming into the uh, the final home stretch so I say that to say that's what overheating looks like. This is about trying to um, perform in the heat uh, to try and let the brain let you get a bit hotter. And I would actually suggest that it's not to be used in events where you're at risk of overheating. So that's a 10K, one hour, half hour sort of time frame. Whereas if it's shorter than that uh, or if it's longer than that, you might be a bit better off here to help with that. So maybe it's something that you use in a marathon that's a bit warmer. But again, it may not be that helpful. Um, I mean, there's some other cool research around cooling your hands, cooling your head and the impact, impact of this. There's some cool gloves that cool your hand, um, excuse the pun there, to help your performance and your output there. So um, there's some cool research in the space. I find neurology and the intersection with physiology fascinating. Hmm. Uh, so that's menthol. We're starting to see it in some products. I know there's some um, companies, some nutrition companies, and I won't mention them. Actually, I will. Never Second, I believe, is the one that started to bring out a menthol gel. Um, whether or not this is good or bad, it's up to you to try. Uh, and the next one's pickle juice. Uh, I mentioned this before. This is for cramping. Um, I'm not sure if you've had this suggested to you, Matt, or if you've tried it. Oh, I'm sure you've I've had it suggested to you. Oh, I've had it knowing. suggested to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, ha I haven't tried I it only because, I mean, I have tried it not in a race. I've tried it just drinking it. And I just think to myself, there's no way I can consume that in the middle of a marathon. Like, no way. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard of football. Yep. I mean, I, I do know Australian football teams take it in, in you know, yep. at their halftime and three-quarter time. And, you know, that's yep. different if you're if you're – if you've got a 10 minute break and you can consume it and then you can, you can sort of wash it down with water. No worries. But when you're, when you're deep in a marathon and you're 30 K in, Oh, you're not going to want to take something like that. I don't know. I'd struggle, and but I've heard, I've heard good things. I've heard people to speak positively about it. Yeah. So it's not going to prevent cramps. It will help stop them. So it's not like, Hey, take some pickle juice and you won't get cramps. It's like once you're cramping, this then works. So that's the I first delineation uh, or as you're getting close to it. The second thing to note is that reason that it tastes like that. And like that funny aspect of like, ugh. That's actually the driver of the effect. So it's not like, oh, can we 
take something out that'll help. No, that's actually why it works. So the initial thought was sodium, but that's not actually the case. I have actually heard of teams, instead of using pickle juice, using um, like American style mustard. Uh, and again, same sort of thing. It's, it's that same uh, reaction. And I'm, I can't get the naming for it. I'm not even going to try and explain the phen phenomenon of what they call it, but there is a name for it. But again, this acts, it looks like it acts on the brain to then act on the local muscular area. So super fascinating stuff from a like neurophysiology point of view. And it's really cool. I love the stuff I nerd out on it, but yeah, I don't know if these are, these are pretty niche supplements, but they do have some interesting research behind it. Uh, it does bear noting that some of these um, supplements we've mentioned aren't necessarily category A from the Australian Institute of Sport and category A is, you know, works and should be used in the right context. Some of these are more speculative. So worthwhile checking those up if you're interested, just as a bit of a caveat here. And the lucky last one is collagen. Uh, Matt, the last supplement we'll talk about. Do you have any experience with collagen yourself or anyone you know? Uh, no, I mean, I've, I've taken it when I had uh, an injury. I was advised mm -hmm. to take it for, uh, I'm going to be honest, I, I don't even recall exactly which injury it was. It was a long time ago. And, I, and I'm not, I haven't ever taken it for sort of any sort of boost to performance or um, to supplement for any other reason other than to, to cure a, a, a tendon. I believe it was a, a tendonitis issue. I, I could be wrong. Um, but no, I, I, I haven't taken it otherwise. Um, so I can't really speak to it, but I've, you know, I've seen it and it's probably one of the, probably on the, on the side of more common things that I've heard athletes take for, for, uh, you know, during especially hard training, but yeah, please, um, it'd be good to hear what you've heard about it and if you've tried it as well. Yeah. Use it quite a bit, um, for tendons as well. Uh, that's probably where the research lies is a combination of collagen and vitamin C for tendons, uh, usually pre or during, as I understand it, I could be wrong there. You'd need to double check the dosing recommendations uh, on when to take it. If you're taking vitamin C post uh, workout, you're going to always be a little bit concerned because it is an antioxidant and you don't want to dumb down that inflammation. You actually want that there. That's part of what helps you adapt to your training. But yes, pre-workout uh, pre dosing for sure uh, can be a way or, or separated in time. One thing to note is it can just be used for protein, right? So collagen is just another form of protein. It's amino acids. So it can just be a protein source for you. And that may or may not be a good thing. Um, but yeah, specific pro uh, collagen supplementation for tendon health or for a tendon that is giving you uh, issues is something that, that can definitely be helpful uh, in the right context. I would be working with people on this. Collagen can be variably expensive. Um, yeah, so worthwhile speaking to your healthcare practitioners about this. And it, it is sort of acknowledged that it might be helpful Again, without a lot of downsides, um, I was using it when I was having some Achilles issues. I uh, can't say if I found it too helpful or not. I mean, to be honest, I didn't change my load, which is the number one thing that you should be doing to try and settle down a tendon. So, um, you know, uh, I was trying to manage my way through it. And to be fair, I managed my way through it pretty successfully. Um, the collagen was kind of a bit of a Hail Mary um, to, you know, if it helps, it helps. And if it doesn't, doesn't. But it wasn't bothering me too much. Uh, the he was to get through that marathon block and then you know recover from that and, and i did that so um that's probably where collagen is most helpful i'd suggest um there is some thoughts around like what about joints yeah maybe there's a there's a role there maybe there's a role in skin health as well but um that stuff's a bit more niche a bit more hard to understand and, and evaluate to be honest um tendon pain or tendon health can be a little bit easier to evaluate in times mm-hmm well, that wraps up 16, no, sorry, 15 different uh, supplements that we've covered over two two episodes. Uh, obviously, is yeah. the first the first episode being being ones that probably most have already taken or are currently taking. And then uh, 
the second episode being uh, maybe slightly controversial ones that some you know some people might have found beneficial and others others maybe not so much. So thanks yeah. for joining. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks as always. Like, subscribe, share the podcast. Let us know what you think. Send us a DM with other ideas you have for episodes or questions you have for us. Thanks again to Rory for submitting this one on creatine and stemming two episodes as a result of that. We do have a couple others that we are going to be covering, uh, specifically running technique and a few other things. So uh, yeah, as always, thank you very much and we'll talk to you next time.